Hello everyone, and welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk. This week, we have a very special Halloween episode for our loyal listeners. The railroad inspires everything from songs to movies, art, and creative writing. This episode is just that. Spooky stories inspired by the railroad and the museum. Today, we join three park aides that have accidentally trapped themselves in the museum after hours. How will they fill time until a ranger lets them out? Will they be able to escape in time for dinner? Stay tuned. Well, this stinks. I thought it wasn't even possible to get stuck in here. I'm hungry. Me too. Hey guys, I just called the ranger and he said he'll be here in 20 minutes. Oh, that isn't too bad. So what do we do until then? Nap? That's not enough time for a good nap. How about some spooky stories? Halloween is coming up, after all. All right, but you go first. Fine. Let me tell you guys all about the boy in the window. Have you seen how weird the museum gets at night? As soon as all the visitors go home, and when everyone who left their jackets has come back to grab them, and we turn out all the lights, the shadows start playing on the walls, especially in the main exhibit hall. Once all the monitors are off and the patrons are gone, you would expect the place to feel empty. It's anything but that. At night, the train cars bounce moonlight back and forth through the windows, and their glow magnifies the faces of the mannequins tending to them. The brakemen's bandaged hands, ready to tie together the passenger car to the engine, look like they're twitching in anticipation, as if the figure already knows that his hand might smash against the metal. Then there's the engineer at the front of the line, whose mustache prickles with excitement, as if the train is really about to take off west, and he's the one to lead it. And then there are the shadows of figures who aren't there, who only exist in silhouette, becoming a part of the exhibit only after close. The maintenance team swears they see these shadows move, but no one is there. But then there's the boy in the window. He's in one of the passenger cars with his family, riding to a new home or visiting friends several hours away. His mother turns away from the window while he looks out, gasping at something that only he can see. For all we know, he's just looking at the station. His face says it all. Excitement, surprise, awe. He's been in this state of jubilation for years. Though you can only see his face, you can imagine his little legs swinging in anticipation of his destination, pulling at the sleeve of his father to look at the fields, the streams, the forests that the tracks pull them through. Sometimes his excitement is too much. Sometimes the little boy in the window is too much for visitors to handle. He startles them looking at nothing while at the same time looking straight through them. His eyes follow them as they walk by, watching them as if they were trees in a passing forest. 
Groups of giggling field trippers will dare each other to go up close and look him in the eye. They always run away before the stare lasts too long. Sometimes we don't want the boy to be there. And sometimes the boy's not there at all. The maintenance team doesn't like to talk about it, but there have been a few times when the window was empty. The first time it happened was right after closing years and years ago. All the school groups were gone, the aides were doing the last check, and one of them noticed the boy was gone. All that was left was a smudge on the window, as if he pressed his face to the glass before getting off at his stop. The aide climbed into the car to see if the mannequin had simply fallen, but there was only a space on the seat, untouched by dust where the boy had been sitting. The aides didn't know what to do. How could anyone have gotten into or out of the car? They were the only ones with a key. One of them chased after the last school group checking out, trying to catch a student with the mannequin under their arm. Another went to the back room. Maybe someone had brought him in for a quick cleaning? But the room was dark, and no one was in. The last aide searched the grounds, checking under cars, in the surveyor's tent, in the transcontinental gallery, the gift shop, everywhere a regular little boy might be able to fit. No one could find him. And as it had gotten dark, it was time to turn off the monitors, lock the doors, and go home. As the light switches were in the very back of the museum, the aides had to turn them off and then use their hip flashlights to guide the way back to the front of the museum to lock up. They were used to walking in the dark, even when the shadows on the walls looked like they rumbled with the train and the light passed through the now empty window. But when they passed by the snowy transcontinental gallery, their flashlights glided over something they didn't recognize. The mural of a tunnel on the wall was painted with rocks, tracks, and reinforced planks to hold back the crushing weight of the Sierra snow. It was an optical illusion, painted as if the exhibits in the next room were about to ride straight through to another dimension, further than any patron could ever go. But when the park aides passed by it on this night, a small, dark shadow had entered the frame. It looked like nothing at first just another pile of rocks painted in the corner. But as soon as the flashlights passed over it, the aides found it. A pair of eyes, wide in wonder, on a face speckled with soot and gray shadows, looking straight ahead from behind a support beam, looking straight at them. It's no question that the aides ran off. But there were no giggles from this scared group. While students will dare each other to look into the boy's eyes, these eyes belonged nowhere near this exhibit. The park aides went running silently, saying nothing until the museum doors were locked. It wasn't until the next morning that the museum's openers found the mannequin boy, covered in dust and dirt, sitting in the wheelbarrow in the snowshed in front of the mural. That was years ago. The boy has since been cleaned and placed back onto his spot on the train. But his eyes, still wide in anticipation, 
look different now. Not that he's ready to explore the museum and everything else the railroad can give him, but that he's ready to return, to explore the places he hasn't seen yet, on another night where the parkades won't find him. To this day, once in a while, a spot of dirt shows up on the little boy's face, always in a different spot, always in a different amount, but obviously and unquestionably, though no one will admit it, from the railroad. The California State Railroad Museum is now the proud home of a new exhibit by the National Model Railway Association. Next time you're in the museum, make sure to swing by our state-of-the-art exhibit up on the third floor, where you'll see beautifully designed model railroads and a look behind the scenes of the hard work that goes into model railroading. You can also see an exhibit reveal up on our YouTube page. I've seen that dirt. I thought it was just normal dust or scratches or something. I always thought that tunnel was a little funny looking. This place is full of creepy stories like that. You know, I saw something myself once. Really? Well, now you have to tell us. <laughs> alright, alright, but don't blame me if you have trouble sleeping tonight. I don't go near the dining car. Have I ever told you guys this story? When I was a kid, I loved this museum. I would beg my parents to take me here every weekend. I would have much rather come here to work the model trains upstairs and look through the tiny windows of the miniature displays than go to my sister's soccer games. Rain or shine, I wanted to be among these giant metal machines. More than once, I asked a park aide if I could spend the night in the sleeper car. I never got to. One time, when I was maybe in first grade, my mom took me here in the late afternoon after I had pestered her for hours to take me. I just wanted to see the new engine that was brought into the roundhouse the first weekend it was out. It also happened to be the weekend of the biggest storm to hit Sacramento in a decade. We're talking thunder, lightning, wind, the works. We even saw some trees knocked down on the way here. Obviously, I didn't care. The stormy day was a perfect museum day. I immediately went to the new exhibit and sat there as long as I could, following the endless tangle of pipes and pressure gauges for nearly an hour while Mom read her book. But soon we had to go. The storm was getting bad, and we had to get home before it got dark. My mom had me wait outside the bathroom as she made a last-minute pit stop before heading out. I sat on a bench just outside, facing the dining car. It had been closed for the past year or so for refurbishments. I made a mental note to try and go in when we came back next week. But as I did, thunder and lightning flashed, blinding me and the rest of the museum until all was a loudly clanging bright white. And then it was gone. As I rubbed my eyes hard from the harsh light, a smell washed over me. Sweet and salty, it was a warm smell. Something different from the air conditioner and freshly mopped concrete floors I was used to. 
It was the smell of pancakes. I looked up from my seat outside the bathroom door and saw that the light that had taken over the entire museum hadn't actually gone away. The dining car was lit up, brighter than I had ever seen it before. Every lamp turned on from its usual dimmed level to full brightness. And there was something else going on in there. It was full of people. Of people who weren't there before the thunder rolled across old Sacramento. I rubbed my eyes, harder this time, and got up from the bench, walking slowly towards the car as I started to see and hear what I couldn't before. Every seat in the car was taken. The rows of dining tables had diners at each place setting, and it was obvious that these were not museum guests that had broken into the locked car. These were adults, wearing clothes that I had never seen a real person wear in my life, only in photos. There were women in tall hats, covered in ruffles and high-necked dresses and long sleeves and neckties. There were men in bowler hats, with mustaches and suit jackets. And then there were kids wearing little caps and bows in their hair, sitting small on their chairs and picking off their mother's plates. They looked like the people who wandered around Old Sack on Labor Day, I swear. I had never seen anything else like it. Then I noticed that yeah, they were eating. They were eating real food. You know how each of the tables on the dining car has its own unique dishware? I could see this Membreno teacup in the hand of an older woman in the first row. It was full of steaming coffee. The man next to her was cutting into a plate of sausage and eggs. The family next to them, at the blue dining set, was picking from a big plate of pancakes, just like the ones I smelled. I couldn't believe my eyes. For what seemed like forever, I just watched as these people, ghosts, apparitions, poltergeists, had their breakfast. Waiters came in and out of the kitchen, forks and knives clattered, children laughed and cooks barked orders. But these sounds and voices didn't match what I was seeing. Um, while the voices sounded like they were happening right in front of my eyes, the people inside the car were moving as if they were in water like they were in slow motion. One of them, the older woman, she turned her head. Slowly, slowly she, she looked at me outside of the car, and that's when I saw. She didn't have a face, or not really, where her face should have been. It was changing, it was, it was blurry, like, like her features were appearing and disappearing as soon as I noticed them. I, I couldn't really make out what she actually looked like. She brought her coffee to where her lips should have been and just let it drip all the way down her chin and onto her white frock. I didn't understand it. I wanted to run, but I had to get closer. I walked up, fast this time for courage, to get to another bench and stand on top of it, wanting to see the things I couldn't, to see if these people were real. But as soon as I was about to get a better look, lightning flashed again, brighter than ever. Thunder louder than before. I screwed up my eyes into my head as a reflex. By the time I opened them, the light was gone. And so were the dining car passengers. My mom was pulling at my arm, telling me to get off the bench. Benches were for sitting, not standing. I couldn't move. She carried me off and onto the ground where she took my hand, pulling me towards the doors. I turned my head as I walked, not wanting to break eye contact with the car. Eventually I had to turn away.
Of course, I thought it was all in my head. Then years later, I started working here. I finally got to go back into the dining car just to do some dusting. Even though I was sure it was just a kid's imagination, I still got nervous on board. I dusted under the covers over the dishware, replaced the bulbs and the lamps, and I saw, at the very last table, a mysterious stain on the red velvet seat. I took a closer look. It was a very old, very dry coffee stain. Relive the magical journey of the Polar Express on an hour-long train ride to the North Pole. Enjoy hot chocolate and delicious cookies as you ride along with many of the story's characters, such as the conductor, the dancing chefs, and a ghostly hobo. Once you reach the North Pole, Santa will come on board and give each passenger a silver sleigh bell, the first gift of Christmas. The Polar Express train ride runs from November 26th to December 16th. Jeez, I'm going to keep an eye out for that next time it rains. <laughs> You're braver than I am. I never set a foot over there when it's stormy anymore. Hey, free pancakes sound worth it. I heard about something even creepier at the Eagle Theater. The ranger isn't here yet, right? No, we have time for another one. Go ahead. Yeah, what happened? Did you hear about the boiler room flooding last week? It happens all the time now, but the first time it happened, it was a big deal. And to some, inexplicable. It was a dark October night when Miss Phillips' fourth grade class began its performance of Gone with the Wind, Rain, and Flood up at the Eagle Theater. Doris was one of the sweetest docents to ever come through the Railroad Museum. She was leading the group that day. She'd been volunteering for years by now and was known for her extensive collection of period clothing and her expertise in repairing them. She loved the theater and loved working with the kids and did everything she could to help them put on a good show. To make this performance extra special, she had picked up an old brown bowler hat from the back of the show closet in the dressing room in the basement. She had never seen it before, but from the looks of it, it was the perfect addition to the mayor's costume. It perfectly fit the dignified but bedraggled look they needed. She had told them the story of the Eagle Theater and its unfortunate destruction in the city's devastating flood after only a few months of performances. The theater had opened in July of 1849 and ran shows for less than a year. Nightly plays, musical acts, and pantomime. But even then, the original owner had trouble filling the seats. At the end of a string of bad luck, the theater fell into the floodwaters in January of 1850. Once it was rebuilt in the 1970s, shadows of the same bad luck appeared. But nothing more than a few broken stage lights and creaking floorboards. It was at that point in the story that Doris loved to scare the kids, having one of the park aides move behind a curtain to get them ready for the show. Now it was time to take to the stage 
where she, her fellow docents, and the students will perform the historical events of Old Sacramento. But it was clear from the start that this particular performance was not going to go as originally planned. Before the play began, the air conditioner started up, clanging loudly and startling the entire audience with its chill. The fan whirred, spinning the cold air around the already drafty theater, stirring the dust and soot from the eaves. It made one of the kids on stage sneeze. Don't worry, Dory said. This old theater's air conditioner does that all the time. And so the show went on, with some encouragement from Doris that the audience now bundle up in their coats. But then, halfway through the performance, when floodwaters rose through the city, a drip, drip, drip started coming from the ceiling. Drops of water fell onto the costumes, the scenery, and the stage, and the mayor's hat. Don't worry, everyone, Doris said. This old theater ceiling does that all the time. Doris helped the students move out of the way of the leak, put a towel down, and the show went on. But once the kids reached the end of the show, when the mayor vanquished the evil river with the building of the levees and took a bow, a sharp snap, a fizzle, and a clank turned out all the lights. Darkness flooded every inch of the theater. Children screamed in excitement. Parrots gasped in surprise. Doris was used to this. It was an old theater, so the lights went out constantly. She went up to the breaker at the back of the theater and turned all the lights back on. The applause for the kids continued. But as the parents clapped, Doris heard someone up in the balcony. The balcony was closed. She was probably imagining it, but it sounded like someone was up there and had watched the entire show. After the applause ended and the parents left one by one with their kids, Doris headed back to the museum through the thick Sacramento fog. Old Sack was quiet at night, and no one was around to see that she had the mayor's hat in her hand. She wanted to bring it home to repair it from the water damage before the next performance. She went the back way through the museum's two presentation rooms to get to the docent lounge. She was in the first presentation room, a lecture hall not unlike the Eagle Theater, when she realized the motion detecting lights were not working. This was fine, sometimes they shorted out. She would tell maintenance in the morning. She had walked through the pitch dark and opened the door to the next theater when she heard it. The drip, drip, drip coming from above her and felt the water splash at her ankles. She couldn't understand where the water was coming from, but she knew it would be a hazard with the AV equipment so close. She had to get out of the room quickly. But then, a groan came from the back of the room. A groan so loud it chilled Doris to her core. The hair at the back of her neck prickled. Goosebumps covered her arms and the hat dropped from her grasp. 
A flutter and a squeak came from the rafters. Bats, but where did they come from? And then, a rich, dark figure, darker than the blackened room around her, closed around her, taking her breath away in a shapeless fog, blinding her from all that she could see. And then it was gone. The dripping stopped, the lights came on, the hat was nowhere to be found. Ah! It's the ghost of the Eagle Theater! We don't have your bowler hat, I promise! Calm down, it's just the ranger. He's finally here to let us out. I'm gonna go talk to him. Oh, okay. Um, hey, so whatever happened to Doris? Doris turned out okay. She wasn't scared off from the museum. She ran the children's programs until her late retirement, loving every moment she had with the students. But she never walked through the theaters alone again, and never at night. But she did tell us her story. Now, whenever the ceiling starts leaking in the lecture hall, once every five years, we know not to go looking for the old brown bowler hat. I'd never come back if that happened to me. What can I say? Our docents are really committed to the museum. All right, guys, we're out of here. I'm really glad we decided to tell stories and pass the time super well. Speak for yourself. I'm scared to walk to my car now. You'll be fine. We'll walk you there. Thank you for listening to today's very special edition of Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. This episode was imagined and written by Emily DeFazio, voiced by Lee Garcia, Crystal Skaggs, and Amanda DeFazio, and edited and produced by Amanda DeFazio. Be sure to tune in for our next episode, released on Halloween night, as we tag along on a paranormal investigation with the Sacramento History Museum.